0: This copyright expired song is Downhearted Blues, as performed by Bessie Smith, written by Alberta Hunter and Lovie Austin, and I kind of like this one. You know, as I experience this old stuff, these old songs and movies, I always want to be the guy who's like, wow, we're uncovering hidden gems from the past here. I always want to like the thing. I want the narrative to be uncovering hidden treasures from years gone by. My honest opinion, most of it sucks. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, long dead people. My honest opinion is that most of this music is dinky, tinny crap. And they are benefiting greatly from just the fact that, look, it's music on a Victrola. What do you want? It's 1922. That's brand new. Oh, you don't want to listen to the record? Fine. Go milk the cow. Go lose your finger in a sawmill accident if you don't want to hear my song. Oh, you'd rather hear the song? Okay, fine. But of course it's bad. Most stuff is bad. There's a name for this. It's called Sturgeon's Law. 90% of everything is crap. You know who said that? Theodore Sturgeon, a writer who was born in 1918. Pop culture didn't just become crap recently, it's always been crap. In 1946, George Orwell wrote In much more than nine cases out of ten, the only objectively truthful criticism would be this book is worthless. In 1890, Rudyard Kipling wrote, Four-fifths of everybody's work must be bad, but The Remnant is worth the trouble for its own sake. The only debate seems to be whether the number is 80 or 90% of stuff. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Me-ho! I can't say that most stuff that gets made is exactly light in my world on fire, so I guess I'm more in the 90% camp than the 80% camp. But the point is, I do kind of like downhearted blues as written by Alberta Hunter and Lovey Austin. Now, Lovey Austin does not have a Wikipedia page, so very sorry, Lovey, you are lost to history. But Alberta Hunter does have a Wikipedia page. She was born in 1895, and stop me if you've heard this one before, she left home at the age of 11. How many people who wrote these copyright-expired songs I've been going through, left home at an insanely young age. As far as I can tell, America, in the early 20th century, was just kids wandering around. We were a nation of lost, wandering little kids whistling a tune, apparently, because they all seem to be very musical. I always thought Annie was like a fun Broadway musical. Now, I guess that's like... A gritty, historically accurate portrayal of the time. Lots of kids, not a lot of adults, and all the kids are singing a tune. But she left home at 11. She was from Tennessee, went to Chicago, so she at least didn't hop a steamship. Everyone else in this series hopped a steamship. Our entire music industry was founded by stowaways from Vilnius. Except Alberta Hunter, who was from Memphis, and her mom, it says here, worked in a brothel. You know what other singer's mom worked in a brothel? Edith Piaf's. Edith Piaf's mom was apparently a cook in a brothel. Alberta Hunter's mom was apparently a maid in a brothel. Hey, I'm a skeptic. Here's what I wonder. Were they really a cook and a maid? (laughs) Were they? Maybe, could have been. Although, I can also imagine a scenario where you go, bye, honey, going to work in the brothel now. To cook. To to cook. I'm going to make lemon squares for the Johns. Maybe some sort of casserole. Not that I have any judgment of prostitutes, of course. I am very pro-sex work. I am not the one to tell someone how to live their life. And I think we've had a couple thousand years of trying to discourage prostitution with not great results. So if <laughs> Alberta Hunter's mom was a prostitute in a the brothel, then... That's honest work being a maid in a brothel also honest work. It's all honest work Would you rather be the prostitute or the maid? Have you seen what people do to hotel rooms? What do they do in a brothel anyway? Alberta hunter left home went to Chicago. It says managed to attend school until the age of 15 So basically a road scholar for the time Her dad by the way was never around he did that classy thing people did back then where he just ditched the family which makes me wonder if he ever saw my great-granddad, who also ditched his family. I wonder if they were drinking buddies or pool hustlers together. This is a woman who was forced to make her own way, and she did, she made a career as a singer-songwriter in Chicago, started out singing, guess where? In brothels. Brothel-based economy back then. You're either a farmer, a singer, or you work at a brothel, those are the three jobs. Alberta Hunter chose singer-songwriter. And then this is interesting. In the 50s, she retired from singing songwriting and went to work at a hospital. And then, get this: the hospital, she was a nurse, by the way, the hospital forced her to retire because they said 70 is the mandatory retirement age. You have to retire. She was 82 at the time. <laughs> This lady kind of rules. Oh, by the way, she didn't have a high school diploma. She told the hospital she did. Should you do that? I don't know. I think she kind of rules. But they forced her into retirement at the age of 70 slash 82. And then she went back to singing, songwriting, and was successful. She got a record deal with Columbia Records in the 70s. This is probably why she has a Wikipedia page and Lovey Austin does it. You blew it, Lovey Austin. After you work as a, you know, grave digger or whatever for two decades, you're supposed to go back to singing songwriting in your 80s or 90s. That in being a Supreme Court justice is what you're supposed to do at that point in your life. So I'm glad we can hear some music from what turned out to be the beginning of a career that ended about 60 years later. Hello, I'm Jeff Mauer, the Michael Jordan of Throwing a Goat Into a Well which you'll get if you heard the last podcast, and this is the I Might Be Wrong podcast, where I do audio versions of the garbage I write on my substack, which is wrong.substack.com, in unaccented American English. I don't think you can hear my accent anymore. I've been gone from the South a long time. Today's episode is Meritocracy is Vital. This is the second part of a two-part trilogy. Let's say trilogy. Trilogy sounds good. Duology, that's nothing. Two-part trilogy. The first part was Merit is Meaningless, which I wrote because I think when we're talking about merit and meritocracy, so often people think we're talking about value judgments. Somebody's worth as a person. And maybe when some people talk about meritocracy, that is what they're talking about. I wanted to make it very clear. That is not what I'm talking about. When I say that I am for meritocracy, and what follows is a full-throated argument in favor of using assessments of skills, you could say merit, for things like jobs and spots in universities. I think those assessments are a useful tool, the best way to do things that we have available. But they are not assessments of worth. Not assessments of worth. So that was last week. This week is, yeah, but we do need to use these assessments. They're good. They're a good tool, or at least they're better than any other tool we have. We have all seen other ways of doing things. And I think if we sit down and think about it, we'll realize those ways kind of suck. So it's called Meritocracy is Vital, subheading, even if there's a broad based coalition shitting on it. And as you can deduce from that subheading, I do think there's a broad based coalition. That is really not a fan of meritocracy. The weird thing is it's become uncool in lefty circles. I feel like the old boy network has always been against meritocracy. It's kind of antithetical to being an old boy network. But it's recently become uncool in lefty circles, which I'm very unhappy about. The concept has been incorporated into what you might call the lefty activist narrative that goes, America's a racist hellhole. I have referred to it before as the America, spelled with three Ks, sucks narrative. I often feel like it is the only song they know. And they have tied the concept of meritocracy to this narrative. And by doing so, they have sapped many liberals of their will to stick to their beliefs. Which I do think reflects maybe the most potent trend on the American left in the past decade. And that is activists pressuring what you might call the NPR crowd, to go along with illiberal bullshit by turning everything into an identity issue. This has been a remarkably successful tactic. If activists started arguing that it is racist to wipe your ass, I swear to God, a large percentage of MSNBC's audience would die of sepsis within a month. I personally think this turn against meritocracy is... A gigantic mistake. I think we really underestimate how potent of a concept this is, both politically and ethically. Politically, I think people feel, feel the effect of meritocracy, or lack thereof, in their daily lives. It's personal in a way that most issues aren't. I think it is a potent political issue, even if it's not the type of thing that normally shows up in, like, legislation. I think it's politically big. Ethically, It seems obvious to me that meritocracy is good. And I am going to make an argument in this episode as to why I feel this way. I'm not just going to say it's obvious and leave it there. It seems clear to me that it is a very good thing. I am bothered by how quickly some on the left are willing to shit can a core liberal principle. Plus, I am also wondering how on earth there is any room left in that shit can after due process proportional punishment of misdeeds, and free speech have also been thrown in there. But last week I argued that the concept of merit is ethically meaningless. Now, let me argue that it is also extremely useful. So, how do you hire someone for a job? Just pick someone you want to bang? Yeah, sure, that's a classic. Hire your nephew, perhaps, so that your sister-in-law will shut the fuck up? That is another time-honored tradition, but occasionally, occasionally someone, this is crazy, will actually hire a person because that person is good at the thing that needs to be done. Strange but true. I have heard tales of people looking at as many as five resumes before they decide this blows. I'm just going to hire the lady who went to college kind of near where I grew up and then play some Elden Ring. I do think it is shocking that we don't demand, all of us collectively demand, that employers number one, solicit applications for a job through an open process, number two, develop meaningful processes for determining which applicants have the right skills, and number three, hire the person deemed most likely to most benefit the organization. And sometimes we do demand this, specifically We demand it when we've been passed over for a job in favor of a less capable person for some bullshit reason. In that moment, we are all in favor of meritocracy. And most people do grumble about non-meritocratic processes, or at least they grumble about them when they encounter them, though we perhaps don't grumble as much as we might. I think this might be because on some level, we all know that an unfair system is occasionally going to break in our favor. In fact, if you think about it, non-meritocratic systems are the obvious rational preference for anyone who is lazy, for anyone who is incompetent, or for anyone who is married to Ivanka Trump. Personally, I have no shot whatsoever at being a flautist for the New York Philharmonic if they hire via a meritocratic process. But... The less meritocratic their process gets, the better my chances become. If they get really arbitrary, I think I got a real shot at this thing. I might just weasel my way in there, even though I have no musical talent and my only experience with woodwinds is a couple weeks or a quarter in the fifth grade, which I would imagine is a lighter resume than flautists for the New York Philharmonic usually have. Of course, traditionally, opposition to meritocracy has come from the powerful, titles, positions, and promotions in basically every pre-Enlightenment society in the world, as far as I know, were doled out according to patronage. Do you want to be the Comte de la Ville de Merde Cheval? That can be arranged for a fee. Do you want your idiot son to be a general who sends more competent soldiers off to die in blunders so egregious that they will be taught in military academies for centuries. If you have enough power, that can and will happen. In more recent times, usually waspy old boy networks dominated certain fields with negative effects, mostly, mostly, except that it gave us madmen, so silver lining. Nonetheless, the clear connection between power and positions made dismantling those structures a top liberal priority for centuries. But As I noted at the beginning, parts of the left have recently turned against meritocracy. Some of us are trying to use hiring decisions to paper over society's flaws. Because sure, the thinking goes, we live in a world where environmental factors lead to unequal aptitudes. But what if we just pretended that we didn't? What if we just made believe as if everyone is equally good at everything. Maybe we can get around the painful, generations-long process of creating a society with more equal access and instead just engineer results that make us feel good. And we can undertake this project despite the fact that it requires massive amounts of race and gender-based discrimination. Now, amazingly, this argument has gained purchase on the left. Personally, I consider that a stunning upset. I think it's as if MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, suddenly decided that, you know what, on second thought, a Corona with lime is delicious and refreshing. So, feel free to throw a few back before you get behind the wheel. After all, a good driver is a relaxed driver. And look, I do understand the impulse to try to right society's wrongs on the back end. And I understand the discomfort with unequal outcomes, but with very few exceptions, I have yet to see methods for sorting out who gets what that are better than try to determine who's best suited to do the thing. Other methods, I think, are inherently arbitrary. They are still sorting people into deserving and undeserving, but they do so according to criteria that have Nothing to do with the question at hand. They instead represent someone's attempt to implement justice, despite the fact that, number one, none of us know who deserves what. None of us are omniscient. And number two, maybe the role of a company is like, you know, to make Triscuits or something. Maybe their role is to do that and not to be the sword wielded by soldiers in the Justice Crusade. I personally think we should all basically declare ourselves agnostic on the concept of dessert. This was a key point in my episode last week, which argued that meritocracy has nothing to do with which people are better or worse. We don't know the specifics of each other's lives, nor should we. When we try to dole out benefits based on dessert, we encourage a sick competition of sympathy mongering. It turns into... That episode of Seinfeld, where George is trying to get an apartment by convincing an apartment board that he's more deserving, so he tells all the pathetic stories of his sad life. He tells the shrinkage story. He tells the Marble Rye story. He tells about the time he dated a Nazi. It is a litany of his sad, sad life as a, quote, short, stocky, slow-witted, bald man. <laughs> and by the way, they called back that exact description for George in a later episode. That became the de facto description for George, which I really love. That's quality writing. Also, credit to Jason Alexander for being fine with him calling him short, stocky. <laughs> Slow-witted, I guess, is the character, but bald. Now that I write for a sitcom, I know that you do wonder, oh, is the actor going to hate me if I write that? He's a good actor. Anyway, we don't want every contest to be a competition over whose life was the most difficult. A contest which, by the way, Alberta Hunter would have won going away. But that's no way to organize a society. These attempts at achieving justice that way. To be clear, other ways we have to do other things. But that particular method of achieving justice just doesn't work. And there is another problem. And that problem is unmeritocratic ways of deciding who gets what job reduces societal benefit by making everything work a bit less well. I do find it strange that we don't talk more about this. We should talk more about the negative effects that non-meritocratic or unmeritocratic, they're both made up. I don't think either is correct. But (laughs) the effect that unmeritocratic systems have on organizations, it seems like hire the best people available, would be a no-brainer best practice about as basic as Don't accept Confederate money or rent office space that isn't presently on fire. And yet, incredibly, there is a debate about this. There is an argument that, you know, maybe companies should hire people who kind of suck and then let the competitors hire the good people. Maybe that's the smart thing to do. Now, I am being a bit of a dick for comic effect here, but only a bit. That description, honestly, I think, basically does reflect what's happening in many cases. Here's a thought experiment. What if a sports team did this? I would love it if one pro sports team adopted the mindset that's prevalent at many organizations today. Just one team should say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. The first half of our roster is going to the children of the well-connected. You might think this is shitty, but there are powerful people. We need to keep happy, so that's what we're going to do. The second half of our roster is going to be constructed to make our diversity numbers look real good. If there are any spots at all left over after those two steps, well, then I guess we'll give those to whoever's good at the sport. I think one team should do that. And I also think that team should be the Dallas Cowboys. And obviously, that team is going to get their asses kicked to a degree that's going to make the 2017 Cleveland Browns look like the 85 Chicago Bears. They are going to get stomped. And in sports, success and failure are relentlessly measured. That is probably why it is perhaps the most meritocratic field there will ever be. Sports fans care about one thing, whether or not a player produces. The end. If I personally had a twin brother who played for my favorite team and he was not getting results, I would be calling sports radio every fucking night demanding that the team Get him the hell off the field. On a good team, there is no room for things like sentimentality or social justice or any consideration other than, do you help us win? And I think in its own way, that's kind of beautiful. Most fields, of course, are a lot fuzzier. The line between success and failure is not nearly as clear. Therefore, there is more space To hire people who are perhaps not the best. Of course, that doesn't make the penalty for hiring people who are not the best any less real. It just makes it less visible. And in my field, entertainment, untalented people get hired all the time. And that would be one thing if those hires were the outcome of a good faith effort to hire the best person that just didn't happen to get results. It is often hard to tell who is a good hire and who is not. But the truth is, in most cases, no such good faith effort existed. Bad hires drag down the production, but the effect is shrouded. Because look, whether a TV show hits, and I work in TV, but this could apply to movies as well, whether it hits or misses is determined by a million factors. So the effect of, for example, a costume designer who burnt production hours by being a general moron is going to get washed out. And by the way, that is not a reference to any particular costume designer I have worked with. But that's a problem. Hiring any bad person, it's going to slow you down. You're going to get stuck in the mud. But when it fails, you're not going to look at the costume designer. You're just going to go, ah, we opened the same weekend as X-Men or whatever. So because these effects are so difficult to see, that allows producers to delude themselves into thinking that they can hire not the best people, without harming the production. But that is a delusion. They are, in fact, reducing their chances of success. All of which is to say, I think there is both an individual and a societal benefit to meritocracy. On the individual level, we all get afforded the right to be judged according to our ability to do some specific thing and not according to arbitrary factors, worst of all factors that were decided by birth. This lets us focus on areas where we show aptitude. On a societal level, we all benefit from products and organizations that are as good as they can be. Now, is this a perfect system? No. In a perfect system, an all-knowing being would reward people with jobs, with spots in universities, with other goodies, in exact proportion to their moral worth. This is how most religions conceive of heaven. And that, I think, sounds nifty. Perhaps even more than nifty. I hope that exists somewhere. But on Earth, which is what I'm focusing on at the moment, on Earth we generally have to settle for the best available thing we have. And I think that meritocracy is that best available system. You know, we tell kids... They can be anything they want to be. You could grow up to be president. That's a common one. And, you know, it's bullshit, obviously. Uh, Kids fall for it. Anyone over this age of six really doesn't. But it's only bullshit like practically so. Not technically bullshit. After all, I could have been president if it wasn't for the whole being weird around people thing. That was the only stumbling block. But importantly, there was no arbitrary barrier keeping me from success. The ingredients for success or failure were all within me, specifically within the part of my brain that makes me kind of surly and easily bored. And it was easy for me to accept that I am not cut out for electoral politics. I have had to accept that I'm not cut out for a million things. I am not, for example, particularly good at sports when it comes to learning languages. I am, as they say in Spanish, el shit. I have been on the wrong end of meritocratic processes more times than I can count. And a lot of those assessments were fair. The assessment that I'm bad at soccer, (laughs) tragically, was bang on the nose. But those assessments, honestly, they don't really cause me any mental anguish because to the extent that they were accurate, they were also fair. I now look back at them as events that pushed me towards areas where I don't completely suck. That's how I feel about those experiences in hindsight. On the other hand, being rejected for arbitrary reasons, and it has happened to me before, that feels kind of different. I don't think that anybody alive will ever think, oh, I didn't get hired because I'm the wrong race. Oh, that seems fair. Nobody thinks that. These situations lead to people feeling blocked, people feeling constrained because. Well, because they are blocked and constrained. This is the type of frustration that I think sticks with people. This is why I'm saying I think this is a potent political issue. I think people really don't want to be discriminated against because of their race, because of their gender, because of their sexual orientation, and will not trust a party if they think that party thinks that maybe discrimination against them is kind of okay. I think the left pays a steep, steep political price when we are seen as blocking people's ambitions for arbitrary reasons. Meritocracy at least gives all of us a shot at finding the best person for a job. One more time, I do understand the desire to create systems that balance out society's inequities, but I don't think that those systems work. I think that they are the new version of someone with power makes an arbitrary decision, which is a system that's existed since the beginning of time. And it's true, meritocracy does not solve society's ills. In fact, it only does one thing. But it does that thing pretty well, which I think makes it a useful tool. And that's the episode. There was a footnote in this article that would have been a digression if I had read it in the course of recording this episode. But it does add some context, so I'd like to read it now. In the interest of clarifying exactly where i stand on this stuff it might sound like i am arguing that a person's background a person's race a person's gender a person's socioeconomic status if you're able to assess that and occasionally like college applications you kind of are it might sound like i'm arguing that should never be considered my position is actually not quite that extreme i think it's practical in some cases to know about a person's background and the reason is someone who has showed a lot of hustle to get where they are impresses me more than someone who had every advantage. And race and gender specifically, I think, are also relevant sometimes. I do think the benefits of diversity are often greatly exaggerated, but that's not to say there's no benefit to it. So, yes, I think light consideration of those factors is appropriate sometimes. However, the considerations I'm talking about ...fit within the the hire-the-best-person ethic. You don't need to change that rule at all to consider race, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic background, when it's appropriate. That all fits within that rule. You do not need to adjust or alter in any way the the hire-the-best-person rule to account for the fact that not every process needs to be 100% blind to an applicant's circumstances. And now that is really the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. There will not be a third part to this trilogy. I don't know why. Maybe you thought there would be. Please share this episode with your friends, rate it on Apple Podcast, and please uh, check out Downhearted Blues by Alberta Hunter and Lovey Austin. It's actually kind of good. And also please come back next week for another episode. Until then... Thank you very much for listening and bye for now.